today, and I want to invite you to join with me in God's Word in 1 Peter chapter 2. And while you're, uh, you're finding your place there, there are just a couple of things that I want to share. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for all who helped make yesterday possible. Uh, we had almost 800 kids, not including parents and families, come through yesterday with our trunk or treating. And uh, we're praying that uh, some of the literature that we handed out would, would bear eternal fruit. Um, far more important than the candy we handed out, that, that some of the connections that we made would, would be lasting and would bear fruit there. Um, also, I want to I just share something that we have coming up that I, 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 want you to, I want you to be in prayer for. Uh, for a long time, we've talked about the importance of community, of sharing in deep fellowship beyond what we can do here on a, on a Sunday morning. You know, we'll come and we'll sit down and we'll gather here in this room for a time of worship. And even if you come to a class, it can be difficult to, to find that space where you share deeply, where you can ask people to pray for some of your, your deepest struggles to uh, fellowship, to build one another up. And so one of the things that we've been praying for and uh, realized that it's been a long time since we've had is an organized structure for providing those opportunities to gather outside of what takes place here on Sunday mornings. And so beginning in January, we'd like to start what we're going to call missional communities. And we'll share a little bit more about uh, that name uh, later in the weeks ahead. Uh, it's my hope and prayer that every single person, everybody who's a part of Brown Corners, uh, takes part in one of these missional communities. They're simply going to be gatherings that will meet in homes. They'll look maybe a little different than what you might have experienced in the past. Uh, the main focus is not just simply to hang out. It's not even a Bible study, but it's a gathering to build genuine community and fellowship through prayer, through being vulnerable with one another, through worship, and, and through mission. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to talk a little bit more about what these groups will look like, how you can be a part, if you're interested in leading one, how, how you can be a part of that as well, some training and that sort of thing. But for now, the, the primary thing I'd like to encourage you to do is to pray, to join us in prayer. Um, pray that God will raise up leaders for these groups. Pray about even leading one of these groups for yourself. Pray about us. Uh, clearing your schedule and making room to connect and find time to be a part of one of these groups. So beginning Sunday evening, and you can pencil this in, but we'll have it in the bulletin, we'll have it in um, the, the uh, weekly, BCC weekly that goes out. But beginning Sunday evening, November 20th at 5 p.m., we're going to begin several weeks of training to help prepare leaders. And we want to invite you, even if you have the slightest curiosity, to come to that first one and find out what this is going to be all about. In fact, that same Sunday in the morning, during our morning services, we're going to talk about the biblical basis for this kind of fellowship, this kind of gathering, how what we do here on Sunday mornings is important, but it's not enough for our, our vibrant walk with one another to, to practice the one another's of the New Testament. Uh, we're going to talk about the imperative of these gatherings to our walk with Christ and to the health of our church. In fact, we, we believe that these are so important. What we want to do is dedicate some time over the next few months to pray and to fast for God's blessing to be upon them. And so uh, you may have, have noticed in your bulletin that we had a, a weekly fasting guide this week. 
Uh, I don't know if fasting has been a, a spiritual discipline you've practiced or if you know much about it. If you don't uh, and, and you haven't practiced it much in the past or it's been a long time, we have a little handout at the Welcome Center out there we'd like to invite you to take home. It's, a, it's sort of a biblical basis for fasting. It's kind of the purpose behind fasting. And I'll just kind of, it's a little sort of a three or four page primer on, on the purpose of fasting. Um, there are several other things that are heavy on our hearts and minds that, that we want to be in prayer and want to be fasting for. And so each of the guides every week will not only have an emphasis on these missional communities, but there will also be some other suggestions of things that we can bring before the Lord. We want to dedicate the next few Wednesdays as that day of fasting. You can fast, of course, other days. You can uh, uh, set aside uh, multiple days uh, if you want during the, during the week. That's okay, but it's, it'll be a day where we can just know that our brothers and sisters are going to be doing the same thing. Um, the, the guide out there will describe a little bit more detail on fasting. Maybe some of you medically can't, can't fast from food for the full day, but there are lots of other ways in which you can uh, sort of really dedicate your heart and mind on those days to be able to pour out yourself in prayer. Um, we want, to, uh, we want to also mention that, that started, we started this morning that at, the, uh, at, at 745 in the prayer room out here that we've also just set aside some time to pray. And so we want to invite anybody who's here uh, before the services. I know it requires you're getting here earlier than what you normally would, but we're going to be praying before the services at 745, not only for the missional communities, but also for our gatherings on Sunday mornings. We recognize that no amount of uh, planning, no amount of preparation, no amount of um, excitement or promotion, none of that can replace the, the absolute necessity of trusting God for His supernatural work. You see, these groups, one of the heartbeats we have behind them is not just simply that they be people who are already here. What we're going to do is encourage each group to think of at least one person who's unchurched to invite into that group. We want The reason we're calling them missional communities is because we want there to be mission. We want there to be an outward focus as a part of these groups, not just simply to strengthen the body of Christ. And so a work like this, uh, something that we need to trust God for on this scale to encourage everybody to be a part, requires prayer. It requires God's supernatural work. And so we want to invite you to join us in prayer. We're going to uh, give you some more information again in the coming weeks and through the weekly. But I want to just kind of share this in person up front here so that uh, it begins to be on your heart and mind. And you can join us starting this Wednesday for a time of prayer and fasting for our church family, for our community, and specifically for these missional communities to, to take root and to, to bear fruit. I want us to turn our attention now to the book of First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and beginning here in verse 11, there's a, a new section of the book. Peter begins what most scholars agree is sort of the second half of the letter. He's been sort of laying a lot of foundation for what he wants to say here, and now with the theological focus sort of laid, the, the, the roots of our of the gospel, of our salvation, the saving work of Jesus Christ, um, digging deeply into the ground. Now, he wants to spring off of that and list and give forth a series of exhortations. And verses 11 and 12 are sort of the introduction to this next section as he's going to talk about the believer's relationship with government, as he's going to talk about uh, 
Christians and their relationship to their masters, especially given that slavery was a big part of their culture back then. He's going to talk in chapter 3 about our relationship as husbands and wives. He's going to talk a little later in chapter 3 about our relationship to other believers. He didn't go into those exhortations and those commands right off the bat. He laid a theological foundation for us. This is who you are in Christ. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is what change has taken place in your life as, as being a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. Now, because of those spiritual riches and resources, he's going to say, here are some commands. Here are some things to pay attention to. And so this morning, we're going to look at the exiled life. What does it look like to live as strangers and exiles in this world? And so we're going to consider the introduction to this section in verses 11 and 12, and then we're going to look at that first exhortation in verses 13 through 17. But let's read them before we do so. Second Peter, or 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what's evil and to praise those who do what's good. For it is God's will that you silence the, foolish, the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. So in this uh, two-verse introduction, I want us to see just a couple of things here in verses 11 and 12. And the first thing that we come across is, in this introductory summary, is the believer's identity. The believer's identity. He says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles... He starts off this section by calling them dear friends. Does somebody have the NIV? What does the NIV translate that? Beloved. Those who are treasured by God. We touched on this a little bit last week because we saw that both Jesus and believers were called precious in God's sight. And we see here now another word. That, that's, the, that's the literal, it's, 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 it's beloved ones. That's the literal Greek word here. Ones who are loved. The, the, the constant reminder in this letter to those believers who knew they were sort of outsiders, they didn't fit in, is, is amazing. This is a reminder over and over and over again that they are loved by God. They are treasured by God. You know what? That's true of you and me. You are the beloved ones. You are God's dear friends. You are not simply uh, his acquisitions. You know, the, the, the NFL trade deadline is, is uh, nearing, and, I, and there was a big deal in the last week. If you're a big football fan, Christian McCaffrey went uh, from just the miserable Carolina Panthers over to a Super Bowl contender to the 49ers, and, uh, and he had some comments about just sort of like the, the feeling of, not being wanted, the, the feeling of being, you know, just, a, just a, a commodity. When you're an athlete and you're getting paid that kind of money, that's, that's 
essentially what you are to those teams. If, you're, if you can be of benefit to them, you are an asset. If you're not a benefit, you become a liability. And you're shuffled away and oftentimes completely forgotten. But that's not how it is in God's family. You and I are the beloved ones. Just because we have a bad day, just because we sin, just because we, we have, we've fallen into disobedience or are wandering from Him or, or have not spent much time with Him, we don't all of a sudden get set aside like some commodity. He calls us His beloved ones. But with regards to our identity, we're also referred to as strangers and exiles. We see this term again. That's the reason we're calling this series Hope as Exiles. He once again, he did it in chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 17, and now here again in chapter 2, verse 11. He's reminding them, listen, this is not your home. You guys don't belong. Some scholars, as we said at the introduction, some scholars see this as... as uh, sort of where they were as citizens, as, actually, as actual Roman citizens, that they were displaced, they didn't belong in this area, they didn't fit in uh, culturally, socially, economically. And that may be true, but I think he's getting at a, at a spiritual truth here. Spiritually, you don't fit in, you don't belong. This is not your home. As Christians, we keep getting surprised, I think, that, that the world is not a fan of what we think and the, the things we do and the things we say, we shouldn't be surprised. He tells us that in a little later. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. Because we are aliens and strangers. Don't forget your identity. This introduction also touches on a believer's conduct. A believer's conduct. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. There's a couple of powerful images here. The first one, he says, is that we need to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Listen, my brothers and sisters, we're in the middle of a battle. We're in the middle of a battle. Some of you have faced warfare. Some of you have have physically been in battles. And you know that there is a complete and total mind shift. There's a completely different way of thinking when you're in the middle of a war. There's this constant vigilance and readiness. And he says, he says, abstain for the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. It's amazing how often... I feel blindsided by temptation. Have you ever felt that way? Like, I didn't expect that to come. Why do I want that? Why am I thinking that? Why did I say that? Where did that come from? We shouldn't be surprised. He says there's a war going on. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. I personally have never been in in military combat, nothing even close but I was thinking this morning as I was reading this passage, I, I remember there being times when I was in high school, there was a group of us that liked to get together and play paintball. And uh, it was all in fun, all in good nature. But I'll tell you what, when you get out there in the woods, like some of those guys would really crank up their guns. And I don't know if you've ever been shot with a paintball or a paintball at close range, especially if it's in the summertime and you don't feel like wearing a snowsuit or something. You may be wearing some, some light shorts and a t-shirt, and you got exposed skin. Those paintballs can sting a little bit. 
And I remember there being times where I would think I'd have a great hiding spot, I'd be hunkered down and no one saw me, and all of a sudden I'd just get raked across the back. And uh, I'd look around to see where it come from, and I couldn't figure out where the shots came from. You're like, this guy's, they're, they're in a, they have a great position, they got, like, yeah, even as you walked out and you had to sit out and wait the next round to start, I still could never figure out where this, this guy was. He's a great sniper. I was surprised. Peter wants us to know that we shouldn't be surprised. There is a war going on. When temptations come, we shouldn't be caught off guard for two reasons. First of all, because we have a sinful nature. We have a place in our heart that is still going to yearn for our old way of life. The Bible says that we're a new creation. We're not who we once were. However you want to describe it, whether you want to call it the sinful nature, uh, Romans chapter 6 calls it the old man. However you want to describe it, there's still a part of us that says, I don't care what God says, that looks really good today. And we shouldn't be surprised. But the other reason we shouldn't be surprised is because we have an enemy who wants to take us down. It's not just coming from within, it's coming from without as well. The Bible tells us, don't be ignorant of his devices. He's prowling around like a roaring lion. You ever seen a, something on National Geographic or on YouTube of a lion stalking their prey? It's amazing how close they can sneak up on their prey before they spring and attack. We have an enemy who longs to take us down. We should not be surprised. And so he says, because of this, conduct yourselves honorably. That, that word conduct means just a, a way of ordering your life. Live your life in such a way that it's honorable among unbelievers. And that brings us to the, the third part of this introduction here is that the, 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 the believer's witness. We live our lives in an honorable way among the Gentiles, and he gives us the purpose, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. The idea here is that unbelievers see our lives in the way that we conduct ourselves in the midst of temptation, in the midst of hostility, as slander, and that they will turn to God and give him glory on the day that he returns. You see, we're called to mission. We're not just called to live a holy life for our own sake. Or even simply for the glory of God. That should be our driving motivation. But he says, I want you to live a holy life because there are unbelievers watching. The hope is that they will be pointed to Jesus. We have a witness. We have a mission. In fact, one of the verses that uh, we're going to come back to here in a few weeks that we, we skipped over is, is verse 9. And he tells us that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have a mission. Charles Spurgeon has once said in a sermon, he said, I would like to make a personal appeal to each of you to consecrate yourselves and your substance more and more to the advancement of the cause and the kingdom of Jesus Christ your Lord so that you shall live holy for him. 
To be a true Christian is something higher and nobler than simply sitting in our pews on Sunday or even teaching in a Sunday school or giving away tracts. It is the laying of one's whole self upon the altar, offering up body, soul, and spirit as a living sacrifice unto God, which is our reasonable service. So that whether we live or whether we die, we shall be the Lord's and live or die for Him. He goes on to say, I do plead, for you, plead with you Christians, and I wish I had more power to do it effectually for the sake of sinners, to stir yourselves up, to pray for them, to labor for them that Though the mighty, that through the mighty working of the Spirit of God, they may no longer stumble at the word, but may yield themselves to Christ and be saved. May that be our heartbeat. May that be our passion. To live our lives in such a way that our witness points others to the Savior whom we call Lord. So that takes us into the first exhortation that Peter has. As he shifts from that introduction, he says, okay, because you're aliens and strangers, because of your privileged position, I want you to live out your lives in a way that's holy and honorable among the Gentiles so that they can be pointed to Jesus and perhaps may turn to him and be forgiven. And so this first exhortation then is to submit to governing authorities. He says, based on that, I want you to obey those who rule over you. The first thing that we see here is the nature of the submission. He says, submit in verse 13 to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those set out by him to punish those who do what's evil and to praise those who do what's good. I don't know about you, but when I read a a passage like this, it begins to begins to make me scratch my head a little bit and I begin my my American blood uh, starts to bubble a little bit and I think what do you mean here what are you calling us to do Peter well first of all the word submit here is is a command it's in the imperative mood it's not a suggestion it's not a like hey I I think it might be a okay idea if you decide to do this it is a, it's a command and the language of the Greek. This word submit means to subject yourself, to obey absolutely. In fact, one writer reminds us that the the word was uh, used in Greek literature as as a military term, and it described the deference to the commands of a subordinate to their commanding officer. It implies a conscious, willing subjection to another's authority. Here's what he's saying. Irrespective of whether you like them, whether you agree with them, whether you think that they deserve honor, I want you to submit to your governing authorities. He mentions the emperor as the supreme authority, and he mentions governors, those who would be under him but still over us. Those who have been sent out to administrate law and justice. This isn't the only passage in Scripture that teaches this. It's Jesus himself taught this. And we see it very clearly from the pen of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. 
He says, let everyone submit to the governing, of, governing authorities, since there's no authority except from God. That adds another dimension to it. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. You want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Then do what's good, and you will have its approval. For it's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it's God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. That's Romans 13, 1 through 4. Both Peter and Paul, in writing those things, remember they lived in this place, in this Roman Empire that was full of openly sinful and decadent leaders. Not just the society, but the leaders were famous for their evil. Government corruption, abuse of women, immorality, homosexuality, infanticide, violence. You could go on and on and on. Nero was the emperor. Have you read anything about Nero? The guy was like the epitome of evil. And especially towards Christians. In just a few short years after Peter writes this letter... He's going to launch a full-scale assault on Christians. Persecution was already coming. It was already there. And and it was just going to get ramped up within a few years. Believers were going to be put to death in the arena as a mere spectacle for the crowds to be entertained as they're torn apart by wild animals simply for their faith. It's these leaders, these leaders, Paul says, Peter says here, submit to them, honor them. Wow. Wow. He says every human authority, not just the ones we agree with, not just the ones we like, not just the ones we voted for. He goes on in verse 17 to say, simply show honor to everyone. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's incredibly convicting. He's not telling them, notice he doesn't tell them, overthrow the government. He doesn't tell them to protest and to go out and and to see what they can do to cause civil disobedience and unrest. He says, honor them. All too often, we forget our role as God's people. The kingdom that Jesus is building is not an earthly kingdom with earthly rulers and national boundaries. It is a heavenly kingdom filled with souls. May that be our passion. May we long to submit and show honor to the rulers of our nation, of our state, and of our community. Because it's what God calls us to do. Not only do we see the nature of the submission, we see the the scope of the submission. And I already mentioned this, but he says every human authority. It's not just the ones we agree with. That's the scope of the submission. Thirdly, the, the purpose of this submission is in verse 15. He says, for it's God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. 
You see, once again, it's an outward focus of mission, of those who are watching, those who are seeing our behavior. We don't want to take our eye off the ball. We don't want to lose track of our mission. And if we think the main purpose is to get, uh, that our main purpose in life is to get the right leaders into position in our country and around the world, we've lost focus of what God has called us to do. Our focus is hearts and souls, not positions of power. And he says, when, when we do this, those foolish people around you who criticize you, their mouths have to be shut. They've got nothing to slander you with because your behavior is honorable. And then we see, fourthly, the foundation of this submission. He says in verse 16, he says, Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up, but as God's slaves. In fact, back in 13, he says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. He comes, brings it back to Jesus. He says, listen, you submit to your leaders, you submit to your president, to your governor, to whomever is in authority over you because of Jesus. And we're told in, in verse, if you just skip down to verse 23, this is, this is what Jesus did. When the governing authorities came after him, it says when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Our Savior, in the midst of his unjust treatment by those who are in authority, did not work up an insurrection or a rebellion, did not tell his disciples, don't ever listen to these people again. They're rotten and they don't, they're, they're clueless. Ignore them. The commands continue to come even after Jesus was treated that way. Submit and honor. One writer says that Christ lived under the unjust and unrighteous rule of the Jewish and Roman authorities. Yet he never opposed their right to rule. He denounced the sins of the Jewish leaders, but he never sought to overturn their authority. Likewise, Jesus never led demonstrations against Roman slavery and abuse of justice or engaged in any act of civil disobedience. He did not object even when those authorities unjustly tried him and crucified him. Instead of being preoccupied with political and social reform, Christ always focused on matters pertaining to his kingdom. Let me read that one more time. Instead of being preoccupied with political and social reform, Christ always focused on matters pertaining to his kingdom. It doesn't mean that we do nothing. We, we fortunately live in a different scenario than what Peter and Paul lived in. We, we live in a democracy. We get a chance to make our voice heard in a way that we can still be obedient to this, that shows honor to our authorities, but yet we have avenues to bring about change. For example, we have this election coming up. We've got a proposition coming up that allows us to make our voice heard with regards to the lives of the unborn. We get a chance to speak into that. We get a chance to take a stance on what we feel is a biblical issue, all without disobeying what Peter is saying here. But with regards to the other officials on the ballot, this election cycle, the next one, 
What happens when that candidate that you don't have much respect for gets in office? What are you supposed to do? We turn to the Scriptures, and it says, submit, honor, and if we bring in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're to pray. 1 Timothy tells us, I urge that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority. I wonder, I'm just going to get real specific right now and step on some toes, I wonder if we have prayed for Joe Biden as much as we have criticized Joe Biden. I wonder if we have prayed for Governor Whitmer as much as we have criticized Governor Whitmer. Or fill in your candidate. I'm just going by the general consensus that I imagine where people stand politically, but fill in the name of your candidate. Republican or Democrat, whatever their name is, whatever your frustrations with their policy, their behavior, their agenda, I guarantee you none of them were worse than Nero. I promise you. None of them were worse than Nero. And yet, we're called to submit, we're called to honor, we're called to pray. Doesn't mean you don't make your voice known with your vote. My brothers and sisters, may we be more known by our gentle and loving and caring and honoring demeanor than by those things that we're against. I have a hard time imagining that we're going to be standing before Jesus one day and he's going to say, I want to thank you for all the hateful things you wrote about this political candidate on your Facebook page. I want to just show you honor for all those times you sat around the coffee table with the guys or with the gals and tore to shreds this person for whom Jesus Christ died. My brothers and sisters, we must be known for our love. We must be known for those who build the kingdom of God. If we're going to be slandered, let, it, let us be slandered because we are so passionate about Jesus Christ that we can't stop talking about him. I, I watched a, a, a YouTube clip from a, a rally in Detroit yesterday where former President Obama was speaking. And in the midst of that rally, a group of people started chanting, F Joe Biden. Now, I, and, and it, was a, it got loud enough and disruptive enough, he was trying to stop them and trying to calm them down. I would imagine that if we got a chance to talk to each of those, those individuals who are protesting that, I'm, I don't know, I don't have any statistics, I don't know any of those people who were there, but I would imagine that greater than 50% of them would say that they were a Christian, would say that they were part of a church somewhere, and yet that was their witness I would be ashamed as a follower of Christ to live that way. That is in utter disobedience to this passage. We are called to show honor, even if, if we can't stand what someone stands for in political office, we are called to submit, to honor, and to pray for them. I realize this passage at this, and I didn't time it like this, that it would be a week or so before the election. That's just how it came up in the preaching schedule. My brothers and sisters, let's not forget that we're aliens and strangers. We are not going to feel like we belong part of this kingdom. We are part of another kingdom. We are going to feel out of place. 
And sometimes I think the more out of place we feel, the more in line we are with the kingdom of God. Let us make it our passion to build his kingdom. And as we do so, to pray for, to honor, and to submit to those governing authorities, even those we don't agree with. doesn't mean you can't gently and lovingly share your opinion in some way. And we're blessed to live in a place that Peter and Paul, they didn't get a vote. Nero was not voted on. They just hunkered down and said, we're going to keep focused. We actually get a chance to speak into that system. And that's pretty cool. But it's not promised by God. It's something that's a blessing we have of living in this country. We shouldn't take that for granted. But let's not make that our main focus. Let's make our main focus the kingdom of God, of loving one another as we've been called to love. And living in such a way, keeping our conduct honorable so that people around us can say that person's different. And who knows, perhaps God will bring them to repentance. And we remember to live faithfully as exiles. If you'd like to spend some time in prayer at all, there'll be a few of us up here who would love to pray for you. If God's speaking to your heart or challenging you in any way, I want to invite you to stay around and pray. It would be, a, um, I think, a blessing to you to get a chance to just pray with another believer. Um, I want to invite you to do that. And just invite you to remember uh, this Wednesday to take some time to set aside to pray and fast, for not only for our church family, but for our community. And, uh, and just trust God to see what he's going to do through these groups. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your faithful and steadfast love to us. Thank you, God, that we can live with hopes, with hope as exiles. This world is not our own. May we remember that. This world is not our home. This world is not our final resting place. Lord God, may we keep the main thing the main thing not be distracted even by good things good causes and we be here to build the kingdom of God may we be willing to listen to your spirit as he brings convictions as our priorities are revealed to be out of order or our behavior among unbelievers or on social media is revealed to be sinful. As we're convicted, oh God, of distractions and idols that keep us from bearing and honoring your name in a way that would give, that would just bring honor to you. May our priorities be aligned in the right way. We thank you, O oh God, for your, your faithfulness to convict us when we're in sin. We thank you, O oh God, for your faithfulness to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we repent. You are so good to us, O oh God. In your grace and your loving kindness to draw us to yourself when we confess those sins to you. 
We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. May the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore and establish, strengthen and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God bless you.